You know that term, ignorance is bliss? Does that work? Could ignorance make you happier or make you better? <laughs> if you don't, if you don't have to work with with fear, then uh, then wow, your your mind and body are probably freed up to do phenomenal things. There's something about that that doesn't seem right. Maybe there's a different way to look at it, a more balanced approach. If you're if you're going to do it for a life, have one chunk of your brain concerned with risk and hazard, while a different chunk of your brain is uh, enjoying the playground. Playground may be an understatement for where this guest spends his time. Welcome to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Welcome to Mountain Meister. Who are the mountain meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice with your host, Ben Shank. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. Today with me, I have Dave Hahn. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Dave, I like to list our guests' accomplishments before we really get things going. And for the Meister fans, I know we have a lot of really cool people on the show, but pay attention to these. 275-plus summits of Mount Rainier, 20 summits of Mount McKinley, 33 summits of Vincent, and the final number is 15, Dave. 15 summits of Mount Everest. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, those numbers are starting to pile up. They definitely are. Uh, welcome to Mountain Meister. And so I did this calculation for a fellow climber, Melissa Arnott, Dave, and I'm not sure if, if you've heard this calculation. This is a statistic that I like to calculate. If we sum up all of those notable summits that I just mentioned, you're about a half of a percent of your way to the moon. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Uh, no, I, I, I wasn't aware of that. But uh, you throw in the, the climbs that, that didn't make the list, the times that I tried mountains and didn't get up them, I, I might be around the moon. Yeah, yeah, you might be close. So this stuff is crazy. It's, uh, it's such a stark contrast to the life that I live and the life that many of our listeners live. But there are lots and lots of parallels, and that's kind of what we have you on here today to discuss. First off, how how much of your life are you doing this, like sleeping in a tent, for example? How, how often are you doing that? Uh, a fair number of months of the year. I mean, uh, the months that I get to spend at home – are probably the, a good indicator on that. I'm, I'm only home about three months a year uh, steadily. That's incredible. Do you ever get worn out? <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, uh, depending on the nature of the the trip that I'm doing, you know, it, it might require uh, recharging batteries afterward and, you know, uh, 
I, I think I've been good at, at structuring my life so that although it's it sounds pretty repetitive by those numbers, uh, there's variety to my to my year going from from guiding in big mountains to ski patrolling here at home, you know, and and trying to keep a little bit of a balance to it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there is variety, especially with the people that you, you, I mean, you do a lot of guiding, so you have different people with you each time, right? Yeah, yeah. The 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 places that I go to tend to be the same, but but the nature of those places, they're, they're places where weather and glaciers and everything, everything else is pretty dynamic. Mm-hmm. And when you combine that with uh, going out with different people, each time, different teams, different climbers, clients. Uh, yeah, it's it's it has been a, a challenging variety for me. You know, it's kept me interested. I guess on that topic, if we take Everest for example, fifteen summits. Uh, how has it evolved or changed since your first? Well, it it definitely has evolved and changed. Uh, you know, my first try on Mount Everest, in which I didn't succeed in getting to the top, was uh, 1991. I've I've actually tried Everest now 20 times to to get those 15 summits. And when you think back to 1991, that was only the very beginning of the commercial expeditions that have ended up being the the norm on Everest now. My early expeditions going there were were a pretty different animal than uh, than what has become somewhat routine, if you could say that about Everest. Yeah, and is that okay with you? I mean, uh, sure. I don't mm-hmm. know that I could have <laughs> kept going if it were as hard as it it was my first couple of times. Uh-huh. You know, it's it. There's plenty of of change involved from 1991 to 2014, but but you know I I hear people lamenting that Everest is different now than when Ed Hillary climbed it in 1953, and I'm you know to me that that seems well of course it's different mm-hmm. you know driving a car is somewhat different than than it was in the 1950s also you know <laughs> I mean, yeah good point yeah things change yeah for our listeners uh in episode number seven we talked to rick wilcox about his expedition that was back in 1991 too if you're interested in hearing about his expedition go ahead and listen to that episode yeah he was on the south side that year we were mm-hmm. uh, over on the north side in tibet so if you had to flash back, say, to college, Dave, could you ever have seen your life resulting in the way that it has? That's funny you should ask because I I had to do that just uh, a month ago. Hmm. Um, the school I went to, SUNY Buffalo, State University of New York at Buffalo, uh, reached out, found me after all these years and, uh, and gave me a well, put me in the the school's athletic hall of fame. Congratulations! <laughs> I didn't I didn't read that at the beginning of the interview. <laughs> Thirty years beyond uh, beyond my graduation there, and uh, and they were specific that you know it wasn't for anything I did while I was in school. <laughs> <laughs> I, I of course got a kick out of that because uh, 
yeah, nobody would have accused me of being a great athlete while I was in school. And uh, going to this, it was my first time back there to SUNY Buffalo and, you know, being forced to, to look at and remember how I viewed the world when I was in school and what I thought I was going to do. No, I, I, I definitely could not have imagined this life. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy that, <laughs> how do I put this? I, I, now I'm happy that I didn't succeed in a, in a conventional field because that would have, uh, that would have kept me from uh, exploring all these weird options. And it's hard to see that sort of thing when you're in the moment. It kind of reminds me of the Steve Jobs commencement speech uh, at Stanford in, I think it was 2007. Sometimes I like to watch commencement speeches. But <laughs> he talks a lot about connect- He talks about connecting the dots and how you don't see how dots are connected until you look backwards. So you kind of need to embrace what's going on and believe that the dots will eventually connect. And I think that's kind of what you've experienced too, right? Yeah, for me... You know, there there was a little bit of wandering there. I hadn't the faintest idea what I wanted to do when I got out of school. I didn't have the faintest idea what I could do. And, and yeah, what, what crystallized it, what made me ready to take that leap that Steve Jobs was maybe referring to, where where you can't quite see the end, mm-hmm. but you're you're willing to devote yourself to it, was... For me, discovering mountaineering, going to Mount Rainier, seeing the guide service up there, realizing how swept away I was with that, how excited I was for that, and and then it was totally that that leap. I don't know that where this is going to take me, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. Mm. And being all these years later, pretty satisfied and and I went for a bunch of years that way you, you couldn't in the mid 1980s you couldn't forecast that you could make a decent living mm-hmm. out of this it still still seemed like seasonal work to most people <laughs> it wasn't a field you'd go in you know with uh with dreams of making it big or you know being successful but uh but but yeah, going at it long enough with enthusiasm ended up making plenty of opportunities for me that, that I wouldn't have been able to forecast right from the beginning. It's interesting to think about how your approach and how you believe in those sort of things. And you, know, you talk about in the 80s, nobody really thought that this could be something sustainable as a career. But if you pursue what you love and you believe, things tend to work out. Switching gears a little bit, we talked a little earlier about how you know things are different each time you climb these mountains. I'm curious if there was a time when you summited and what you saw or what you felt emotionally was different than what you expected. I'm sure you have expectations going into the summit, and then right when you summit, were you just surprised at what you felt? Yeah, I can think if you're referring to Everest, yeah, the the first time that I was actually on the top on a on a nice day 
was my fourth summit of the mountain. <laughs> so it was like 2003. I'd first gotten to the top in 94, got up again in 99 and 2000, but all on cloudy days, snowy days, weird circumstances, strange events, uh, <laughs> emotional roller coasters, survival epics. In 2003, I got to the top with clients, and it was a beautiful day. And I remember being <laughs> this sounds this sounds kind of silly now, but I remember being amazed that you could actually climb Mount Everest just for the view, you know, that uh, it, because it was the first time I'd seen the view from the top. And I, had, at that point, had already spent a good chunk of my life on Everest. But to be there early in the morning on a beautiful day with everything going right, um, you know, feeling good, it was it was a whole different way of uh, of approaching the mountain <laughs> to, to know that it you know it wasn't just this big meat grinder it could actually be this very pleasurable experience some people wonder why you would even be pursuing something that seems like a meat grinder uh, that's a different topic that we've discussed before with other people you said survival epics there what sort of survival epics uh the first time i i made it to the top of everest my second try it's a long story, but I ended up on the top by myself uh, late in the day, 10 minutes to 5, in in what turned out to be a pretty good snowstorm. Um, before I got down, I ran out of oxygen, daylight, <laughs> brain cells, and and spent the night out. And actually, I'd spent the previous night out as well. It ended up being this 60-hour epic that pushed me pretty far and well that I came through without a scratch essentially but that took me about as close to my limits as I think I want to (laughs) go I don't mean to imply that it that it was all me or did it all by myself or anything like that but uh but it ended up being a a much more solitary experience than it was supposed to be at the time. Did you think you weren't going to make it home? Um, I'm I'm often asked that because when I when I fully describe the circumstances, yeah, you you know I could point out how many people have been in the situ- same situation and didn't make it home, or similar situations and didn't make it home. Truthfully, at the time, I was so busy with trying to dig myself out of this hole I dug myself into that I don't think I had time or energy to be uh, to be scared that I was going to die. I, I, I don't think I ever reached that point. I think I was very aware of the seriousness of my predicament, but, uh, but I was pretty focused instead on, on what I needed to do next to, keep finding my way out of this problem <laughs> that that may have helped you yeah i think for sure it had and uh and you know in my credit by that point i had i had a lot of good experience to draw on but you know good experience at screwing up and, and <laughs> having to make <laughs> it come out right 
you know, uh, that I, that I had by that point been climbing for a number of years and, and got myself in over my head a few times and done some all night epics with partners to, to get out of a fix, you know, that kind of thing, having that to rely on made a huge difference for me. You talk about luck sometimes with your summits and as do many mountaineers and seasoned climbers how much do you think luck has played into your career and then conversely do you believe in bad luck the way that you believe in luck uh yeah i mean no question that i've been lucky i mean i've i've in the time that i've been in these big and dangerous mountains doing mildly dangerous things. I mean, I've, I've seen plenty of bad things happen to people that didn't necessarily deserve bad things, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that appeared to be doing everything right and, or were doing everything just the way I, I felt like I was doing it, but that, uh, got into bad situations or had things go drastically wrong. And there, there are situations like I've described of, uh, of getting yourself into a fix. And then, then there's the nature of the, the places we go and how we get to them that, that yes, the, these are places where, where bad things can happen. If you spend enough time in a dangerous environment, mm-hmm. you'll, you will subject yourself to, the the chance for you can call it bad luck <laughs> you know uh whether it's an avalanche coming down you know if a spot is avalanche dangerous for five minutes a year and you happen to be in it in that spot in those five minutes yeah that's bad luck mm-hmm. but if your climbing strategy meant that you were spending too much time in that dangerous area and not recognizing that hazard then perhaps you invited that bad luck. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that that everybody who invites that bad luck receives it, and that doesn't mean that everybody who gets it deserves it. <laughs> but you can't be in these environments and and not recognize uh, that we we try pretty hard. I try pretty hard as a, a mountain climbing guide, not not just as a climber. But as a, a guide, you know, it's the, a huge part of my work is to believe that I can control the amount of risk that I take and that my climbers take. But, but you can't do that if you don't recognize that, that just being in these places has its own risks. And I think that's a lot of what I do is, is evaluating risk, evaluating hazard. And it's not just in the last hour to the summit of Mount Everest. For me, it's getting into all these strange little airplanes and landing on all these weird little corners of the globe and on snow strips and ice and getting in helicopters and trucks on strange mountain roads in Nepal or Tibet. <laughs> you know, there's risk everywhere and there's, there's luck involved in a lot of the things that we do. Exactly. And I like to say sometimes, uh, I said this in one of our other interviews, luck is a function of the number of times that you allow yourself to be lucky. 
And my point there is that, you know, you need to try things and allow luck to emerge. But then there's also the other side. Bad luck is a function of the number of times you give yourself to be unlucky. And we always hear about, you know, these so-called accidents where, oh, you know, the person's a veteran. He's been doing this for such a long time. Well, if you think about the number of times that you do this, sometimes the luck runs out or it's just a matter of time. And I'm not directing that toward you at all. I'm just saying, you know, probability or the number of chances that you give something to happen, it could happen. Yeah, yeah. And combine that with, you know, we, we've all known great adventurers you know, the accidents that have killed them haven't been out in the great ranges of the world, but, you know, mm-hmm. driving a car. <laughs> I mean, uh, I try to bring the, the same awareness that I that I think has served me well in the mountains for, for risk and keeping track of, you know, the hazards that I'm juggling and stacking one upon another. Well, I, I try to apply that to daily life closer to home. And, you know, since my work when I'm home here is is at a ski area, essentially managing risk as a ski patroller, um, it doesn't make me immune from having accidents myself at a close to home and while out playing. But I'm sometimes aware that that many people – Playing in in what I view as a a, a hazardous environment, uh, convince themselves that there is no risk to it mm. that that it's all an amusement park and nothing could possibly go wrong, and that that probably allows people to do incredible things. <laughs> if you don't if you don't have to work with with fear, then uh, then wow, your your mind and body are probably freed up to do phenomenal things. Ignorance is bliss, right? To to a point, if you're if you're going to do it for a life, then I think you better reach a balance where you can accommodate fear. You know, have a have one chunk of your brain concerned with risk and hazard while a different chunk of your brain is uh, enjoying the playground. Mm, Good point. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You were able to mitigate the risk as much as possible and then be aware of that remaining risk. Is there a quality that you have, do you think, that has made you successful at doing this? Yeah, humility. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I said, you know, I think, the lack of fear and and overwhelming self confidence man i've seen what that can do for people you can you can you can do incredible things if you're not worried and if you if you don't entertain fear but I, of course i've you know that's that's been one of the the challenging parts of my job is is moderating that for for people that aren't very scared of things that they maybe should be scared of it's one of my big jobs to to keep it real and to you know to keep the priorities and keep the focus on safety you know when i when i talk to you about how i've successfully managed risk there's a a a bit of me that says well geez don't say that you're you're 
going out tomorrow. You're you're going out for more risks. You're not you're not at the end of your career. You're in the middle of it. So so you can't pat yourself on the back and say, ah, geez, job well done, because because in what I'm talking about, you're only as good as how you react next time and whether you make the the correct decisions next time. My my clients when I take them on a mountain, it may help them to 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 know those numbers that you cited at the beginning. But if I can't help them on the the specific day that we're out there, then the, all those numbers from the past don't don't make a whole lot of difference. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it's worked well to to go out these mountains with humility and and with a little bit of fear with a, an awareness of of what can go wrong and you know to to deal with it from that standpoint but perhaps that's also what's kept me going back to these mountains is i i turn out to continually need the test that i can continually need to succeed at these tests Maybe if you go at it with less humility, maybe if you, uh, you know, can come off one of these summits and, you know, you feel full of yourself and you feel like you conquered the mountains, well, then you can move on to the next challenge. And (laughs) I haven't reached that point yet. Yeah. It almost reminds me of one of my favorite movie scenes. Have you ever seen The Hurt Locker? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the end of the movie where the main character, played by Jeremy Renner, he's looking down this aisle of cereal? Basically, for the listeners, this whole movie is about disarming roadside bombs in Iraq. And when the main character returns from his deployment, and the whole movie's about, you know, this countdown, how many days he has left, he's staring down this long aisle of cereal, and it's like, how can you go from something so intense as disarming a bomb in Iraq to picking out one of 100 cereals in a grocery store aisle. And Dave, you're doing things that are so intense on these expeditions. Do you ever have trouble adjusting to what may seem insignificant compared to those things? (laughs) Well, I definitely wouldn't put it on uh, on the level of (laughs) <laughs> what the service men have done in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. But, uh, you know, I think uh, I, I can remember times when when that re-entry into the, into the normal world was, was a more profound experience where I'd been out there, whether it was a Denali expedition or a Himalayan trip, and the first time back in a supermarket in America when, you know, you're not hungry and you're not, <laughs> you're not uh, worried for your life and you're looking at all this, uh, you know, or in the shopping mall or something like that. And you re- realize again what, what other people's priorities are and, and surrounded by this abundance. Yeah, there's – I can certainly remember that novelty and that, that – that shock of of how easy the rest of life can be, but yeah, I also have to say that uh, in twenty eight years of of doing this stuff, 
that novelty has worn off some. You know, maybe maybe you need a bigger and bigger hit in order to get that novelty. But but sometimes after a two and a half month expedition overseas, you know, to come home and be driving around in my car, you know, out from the airport and going into supermarkets or whatever. Sometimes I'll do like a half a day of it before before I realize, oh yeah, haven't haven't done this in <laughs> in months. <laughs> well, as I say, perhaps you uh, build up something of a, a tolerance, and that novelty doesn't strike you quite as strong anymore when you when you keep working the same contrast like that. Mm-hmm. So to lighten it up a little bit, it's been pretty heavy so far, which I like. We do like to ask for a gear recommendation from all of our guests, Dave. And we could probably have a whole podcast episode about the gear that you use. But we'll just keep it to this one. Do you have something that you would like to recommend to our listeners? <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I work for gear companies. I uh, help build and design gear and man it's it's wonderful having great great clothing great gear out in the field and uh you know i've i've benefited greatly from advances in it but spur of the moment thinking about it man i like having uh the electronics that i have on trips now and i i you know the thought of uh having a kindle to bring on an expedition, you're never going to run out of books anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the battery life is so long now and they're so user-friendly. I I contrast that to bringing along a couple of beat-up old paperbacks that would get torn and wet and you're partner in a tent would be reading one and you didn't have one and you'd be like <laughs> trying to like take it out of their fingers or ripping off pages when they were done with them you know now to having you know this endless library to be able to sit out a storm with or to you know ride on airplanes for hours and hours and hours with yeah i i think those kindle paper whites are pretty good that's neat what book are you reading right now I just started a Hampton Sides book about a a ship in the Arctic. I'll throw that on your Meister profile page as well as the Kindle recommendation. Thank you, Dave. To wrap things up, I like to ask this question to some of our interviewees uh, because it evokes a different answer each time I ask it. So you have inspired lots of people out there, mountaineers and non-mountaineers alike, You've saved people on the mountain. You've saved lives. I'm curious if you're inspiring all of us, who out there or what type of person inspires you? You know, I it's certainly been all of what I was capable of to uh, <laughs> to to work to concentrate on on the things that I've done. I guess uh, the people that blow me away are those that seem to have excelled in 10 different worlds. You know, I I still, some of my clients, not only are they apparently very successful in business or medicine or whatever, but they, but they also 
turn out to be very good at climbing or skiing and seemingly everything they do I don't have that uh, I don't think I have that uh, widespread ability and yeah when you when I meet people that seem to be able to to do it all to have a to have a family to you know have a successful career to to be able to play in the mountains around the world you know at that level but then you found that they're also doing good works and philanthropical activities around the world well it can be pretty humbling and inspiring to to meet people that that seem to be doing it all when you know for me to to make it work it's been more a matter of a narrow focus there are amazing people out there doing amazing things including you dave thank you so much for joining today on mountain meister fantastic having you really enjoyed this conversation for the listeners, check out highlights of this episode on our website, mtnmeister.com. We'll have Dave's gear recommendation, quick bio, even a quote from you, Dave. So thank you so much. Hey, great talking to you, Ben. And uh, we'll check back in with you in a couple of years when I've done something notable. Notable. Hmm. Interesting choice of words there, Dave. Just kidding. Hey, everybody, thank you for tuning in to this episode with Dave Hahn, 15-time Everest summiter and half of a percent on his way to the moon. Meister fans, if you are listening to this episode the day of its release, that means I am less than a week away from the marathon that I will be running on Sunday, November 2nd. If you've been dying to get a donation in, which I know you have, there's still an opportunity Visit mtnmeister.com, find the link to donate, it's right on the homepage, and you could be entered to win one of four, four, Jansport, multi-day and single-day hiking packs. For those of you who would love nothing more than to track my struggle, you can do that. There's a marathon app affiliated with the New York City Marathon, and all you have to do is download that. Type in my bib number, which is 17831. I'll post that to our social media sites. And you can track my time, my location on the course, if I make it across the finish line alive. I'm feeling good, though, everybody. One week out. And thanks for all of your support. Until next time, I am Ben Shank, and you've been listening to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister.